Harvard Divinity School. To eat alone is to die alone, a voyage into the lives of seeds and their communities, March 22nd, 2022. Okay, welcome everyone to our fourth event in our spring semester series, Disrupting Injustice and Promoting Moral Imagination in Israel-Palestine. My name is Hilary Rantisi, and I'm the Associate Director of the Religion, Conflict, and Peace Initiative, a program of religion and public life at Harvard Divinity School. And also, I'm a co-instructor of the HDS course, Narratives of Displacement and Belonging in Israel-Palestine. Our work centralizes an analysis of structural injustice, violence, and power, and examines how a more capacious understanding of religion can yield fresh insights into contemporary challenges and opportunities for just peace building. The primary case study we're focusing on is, is, is on Israel-Palestine. Our aim is to stretch the scholarly discourse around religion and the practices of peace, peace building and examine the decolonial potentialities of art, religion, and identity transformation. Our series this semester showcases religion, conflict, and peace fellows and their work. While affiliated with our program, they've all worked on a variety of projects from illuminating transnational solidarities to reimagining Jewish identity, supporting Palestinian steadfastness, sumud, and cultivating moral imagination and creative possibilities for a just peace in Israel-Palestine. Today's event highlights the work of our fellow Vivian Sansur, who will be presenting on To Eat Alone is to Die Alone, a voyage into the lives of seeds and their communities. Vivian Sansur is the founder and director of the Palestine Heirloom Seed Library, where her work with farmers aims to propagate and recover threatened heirloom varieties and create local and international public awareness campaigns to educate people about Palestinian agricultural heritage and biodiversity. While a fellow with us, Vivian's project has been to capture her work in an autobiographical work that weaves stories and sketches of nature, struggle, womanhood, triumph, and social change. Today, she'll be taking us on a journey uh, of her writings and, and uh, uh, introduce us to her project. She will be joined in conversation with Dr. Riyad Bahoud. Professor Bahoud is a Palestinian-American professor of history and serves as Global Studies Coordinator at Sacramento City College, where he has taught courses on Middle East history, world history, and global issues. Professor Bahoud co-produced the film People and the Land, which was filmed during the first Palestinian Intifada, and is currently working on a film that examines Palestinian realities and narratives through relationships to food and landscapes. So without further ado, I uh, welcome Professor Bahur and Vivian Sansur to start and take us on this journey. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Hilary, for that introduction and welcome to all our participants. And hello, Vivian. Uh, Hi, Vivian. <laughs> I'm uh, honored that you shared your manuscript with me at the stage of writing. <clears throat> I have to say that I was very moved by your writing. And I'm of course also honored that you invited me to converse with you about your work here 
This is such a such important work, and and I like most of the attendees here are eager to receive it when it's out in the world. Uh, in fact, I would go further and say many of us literally need to hear and know these stories as integral to our liberation and resilience, not just as a distinct people in our context of struggle, but also as humans on a planet in crisis. We'll start with a handful of framing questions um, before you offer us a few excerpts of your work in progress. So to start us off, yesterday was the first day of spring and Mother's Day in Palestine and the Arab world. Happy Mother's Day to all the mothers, literally, and also more broadly, those humans and non-humans who bring life into the world, who build rather than destroy, and who nurture other beings. What does Mother's Day and the first day of spring mean to you right now in the context of your work? Uh, wow, uh, this is a lovely question. First of all, uh, thank you. And uh, I want to also thank everybody um, at the Divinity School who uh, helped organize this event. Um, I, I just also should mention that it is quite nerve-wracking to share uh, some of this work in progress because it is in progress. Um, but uh, actually, I love that you asked me about Mother's Day uh, because I think a lot about why Mother's Day in Palestine is the 21st of March, which is uh, the first day of spring. And when I think of mother, I think of also our planet and the earth and how appropriate that we actually celebrate Mother's Day uh, the first day of spring, which is literally when the earth really comes uh, to full bloom. And um, yeah, so I, I find it a, a, a special day. I just actually came back from Palestine, so I missed uh, Mother's Day by one day. And, uh, you know, I love it because it's, it's literally the first day of spring, but it's also a reminder that we actually all come from Mother Earth, along with our mothers, obviously. Beautiful. Um, so the title of the presentation today is To Eat Alone is to Die Alone. And I'm wondering what does it mean to be alone um, and to die alone? Last week, for example, 19-year-old Ahmad Shafiq Abu Afifa from the Arub refugee camp was shot in the back and killed. Last month, 14-year-old Muhammad Shahada was killed, uh, was shot in Al-Khadr and denied medical care, leading to death while Israeli soldiers held off ambulances. Sorry to dive into such heaviness, but this is, this is our reality. Uh, I wonder if a people can collectively feel alone or die alone. I'm tempted to believe sometimes that Palestinians are alone in the world. Uh, before I remember in whose company we are and how much love there is between us and so many people around the world. So how could it be that we feel alone or could it be that we feel alone only when we seek recognition and love from the institutions and centers of power in the world, be they Western or otherwise? Are we looking for love in all the wrong places? Can you, can you say a little bit more about this concept of being alone? Uh, well, I should first start by saying that I, I chose this title because um, I, I tend to dance between many worlds and particularly between the United States and Palestine. 
and the stark difference between how we interact with the world uh, is is so glaring usually, particularly when like you know it, like the first week of this movement we do. Um, but also because the, the, the premise of actually my book that I'm working on is about how do we live in community as people of this planet? You know, how, how do we actually figure out uh, the importance of our relations in, in, the, in the process of trying to survive um, in a planet that's dying, actually, or uh, while many things we love are dying, um, but also, it, it's it's inspired by the Arabic saying, "Libokul uh, halu and or in other words, sometimes people say "Libokul halu bizwar," and it's because there's such a focus on the importance of actually being together and that we need each other to survive. Um, when the context of Palestine and loneliness, you know, I. I think that we've been alone a lot of times as Palestinians in the world. There is that sense constantly of being alone or that we don't even like exist to the world. Like we're so invisible in a lot of times. Uh, and yet at the same time, there are, like you said, a lot of people who, who, who take a chance and who are in solidarity or who come and partner with us and it's not so alone. So I'm not sure if I answered your question or, um, but no, of course, of course, and there's there's no uh, one answer. And then there are people who are also in struggle, like like we are, right? And that we're kind of companions in that struggle. Um, in in your work, uh, both your work in progress and your life's work more generally, and I think this is kind of connected to your point about community and togetherness. You often come back to ahlithara people of the earth or people of the soil. Um, and you can define it more as well. There are a lot of dimensions to that phrase. Um, both literally, you actually always go back to Al-Thara, literally and physically, and with your ideas and the way you frame and design your projects. Can you tell us what Al-Thara means? Well, I can tell you what Al-Thara means to me. Uh, um, so thara is basically literally the soil in Arabic, and uh, I, I, I have been exploring this concept as a way to understand how do we, again, engage in right relation with, uh, with, with the natural world that we're part of, that it's not something we're separate from, and to understand ourselves as part of the soil, made up of the soil. I mean, literally, it's uh, it's biblical, whatever, but it, but it is literal, uh, you know, that also soil, you know, my work is a lot about seed, but in reality, um, you can't talk about seeds without talking about soil. And uh, the other part is that soil is, um, sorry, there's a lot of noise, but okay, I think it's, yeah. Um, it's continuing. Um, but um, I wanted to say, yeah, so Ahlid Thara for me is, is how do we be in the world, basically? Uh, are we being people of land or are we being people of materialism? And uh, I think that um, being Ahlid Thara in this case, uh, when we're talking about people who are 
continuing to um, whether cultivate land, uh, grow food for us, uh, conserve our biodiversity, and in essence conserve the whole culture of soil because soil, like culture, is a very living thing. So um, it is it is really a question of how do we be in the world. And you you definitely um, write about that ways of being and ways of seeing and we'll kind of get to that a little bit later. Um, but speaking of soil and of protecting soil and protecting communities, I, I want to and and also the seed library. Uh, I want to ask you about Betir, um, the village of Betir, where we've been together. Betir is famous. Uh, it's a famous village nestled between Jerusalem and Bethlehem, uh, near the destroyed village of al destroyed and depopulated village of al And it, Betir is known for its ancient system of springs and canals, cultivated terraces, and its famous eggplant, and it's now home to the Palestine Heirloom Seed Library. Um, how did the seed library find a home in Betir? And what is so special to you about Betir? Uh, many things. Uh, so I, I love Batir for several reasons. And one of them actually is that um, for the system of irrigation that UNESCO World Heritage Site, that, that it was granted UNESCO World Heritage Site for, uh, people often think that it's just about the ancient terraces, which they are ancient, they're pre-Roman, the canals are also ancient. Um, but it's really... Uh, also about a social cooperation, meaning that this system of irrigation that's rare in the world, uh, is one of very few, uh, has survived not just because of the canals and the architecture of it, but also because it totally relies on uh, human collaboration, which goes back to to eat alone is to die alone or to be people of land is also to be people who we don't have to always like each other, but we also have to know that we live on this planet together. So, for example, when I first went to cultivate a plot of land in, in Batir, um, I had to rely, it was in the bottom of the mountain, and I had to rely on folks at the top of the mountain where the spring is to direct the water my way for irrigation. So I had to yell across the mountain. They had to want to receive my uh, request and be willing to help. And this um, willingness to help and the understanding that for our crops to survive, we have to collaborate together, just the way crops also collaborate together. Uh, for me, that was really powerful because this is a place where we can have a great example of human cooperation. And the other reason was because um, I think having role models is something really important. And in Batir, uh, there is the case of one person named Hassan Mustafa, who in 1948, when the Zionist militias um, were uh, killing and destroying all the villages around, the people of Batir left for fear for their lives. And they ended up in refugee camps, actually. But then Hassan Mustafa stayed with a few others. And uh, he, with the other guys, uh, put out lanterns and clothes. And when the war ended, 
uh, he went and took buses to the refugee camps and brought back the people of Batir to their village. And for me, that's also a great example of how important it is that our choices as individuals uh, are important, they do matter. And, and having a role model of somebody who, who, who dared to do something that other people may have thought was crazy or very risky um, is always very inspiring. So in a lot of ways, we're kind of continuing this tradition in Vatir of uh, also just inviting um, farmers who are right there uh, to come and be in constant conversation without having plans and um, special forms they have to fill or conferences. Uh, we just show up and um, and talk. You know, a lot of times it's just farmers show up to have a cup of coffee. And so this was very important because the essence of the seed library has always been that it is not uh, something that is you know, static or stagnant, that it's something dynamic and alive. And so being in the heart of it uh, keeps it alive. And I'm learning something new every day. We're always learning from each other just by being in Batir. That's wonderful. I love the image of you in the, in the bottom of the hill using your voice to call up and, uh, and ask for somebody to open the canal for you, right? And it's somehow connected to ways of seeing, ways of hearing, ways of being. Uh, and Batir seems to encapsulate all of that as an as a ideal home for the seed library. Um, so speaking of ways of being together in community and back to the idea of eating alone, um, by way of kind of a, more of an introduction to the, the manuscript, can you talk to us about eating? Can you talk to us about the idea of eating, why, why we eat and why, and what is eating alone? And there is actually a funny connection um, in your introduction between the idea of eating alone and one of the early key people who inspired you, uh, who used to eat alone at the restaurant where you worked as a server while in, while in college. And I'll, I'll leave it to you whether you want to read from the introduction or whether you want to just set the stage for us in the in the Arab tradition of uh, oral storytelling. So this part you can either read or you can tell us. Uh, well, I maybe I should read something. I just should say that uh, as a as a process to start even structuring this book project, uh, I wrote a, a kind of introduction. It's a little. Um, it's a little, it, it gives a little context, so maybe I'll share parts of it, not all of it. Hopefully, it, if I go too long, you can stop me. Um, but it, it starts really uh, by setting the stage uh, where I talk about my journey with uh, John Sabella, who's been my lifetime mentor and friend. Uh, and he really, um, I really dedicate a lot of my, my work, even uh, just little things in my daily life to him because he really is someone who inspired so much of what I do. And uh, my journey started with um, uh, him sending me to Uruguay when I asked him whether can I, can I, can I start a farm. Uh, 
uh, and I had just come back from Palestine and things were looking really bad and I was asking him, do you think I can farm? And so this is where the introduction sort of starts. I'm just giving you a beginning. So I'll, I'll read now. <laughs> Wait, go for it. With no uncertain terms, he asserted, you need to go to my farm in Uruguay. I didn't even know where Uruguay was on a map back then, but that summer I packed my bags and I headed to Tacuarembó, a small village in northern Uruguay and close to the Brazilian borders. John, who had sent me there to explore his farming project as a blueprint for what I could do in Palestine, insisted that the best way to go about this journey is through a Rio de la Plata, on a boat that I would ride from Argentina. Following his instructions, I had to fly to Buenos Aires from North Carolina where it was still warm and prepared myself for a South American winter. Everyone should buy shoes in Argentina, he said. They have the best leather, he convinced me. And there I was, a woman in my 20s, trying on a pair of snug black leather boots in the market in Buenos Aires. The alleys of the bustling Argentinian bazaar resembled some of the ones in the old city of Jerusalem where the smell of leather made me feel at home. Maybe you need a size a little bigger? The lady in the shop was determined to make a sale that day as much as she was determined to know where I was from. My Spanish at that time was hardly existent. I had spent all summer in North Carolina setting up several rendezvous with Paloma, an exchange student from Venezuela who introduced me to several Mexican bands like Mana and others whose songs I listened to on repeat as I was trying to learn the language. Needless to say, my Spanish vocabulary was limited to cheesy love ballads that spoke of unrequited love and other wretched experiences of romance gone bad. Just enough for me to understand the shopkeeper's reaction to my answer. Uncomfortable and visibly angry, she did not mind risking her shoe sales that day to tell me that Palestinians don't exist. Palestinos no existen. That was not the first time I had been told this, nor was it the first time I had encountered people who had never even been to my country, who adamantly referred to it as a land without a people, or who felt entitled to define me. But I grew up in Bejala, a small village where all I knew was apricot terraces, grapevines, almonds, and olive trees that are older than Jesus. The dominant narrative that my people didn't exist seemed humorous to me. Was my grandmother a figment of my imagination? Were those ancient olive trees props for a set that hosted performers who pretended to know each distinct olive variety and every wild grass in the land? What about our names? Why do we have names referring to cultivars that were domesticated thousands of years ago? and without even any irrigation. How could we have developed one of the world's staple foods, aka wheat and barley, and not have existed at the same time? How could we have given the world bread and cookies while being so invisible? Are we imposters in our own lives or is the world so blinded by its own prejudices that it has to deny our very existence to justify its apathy 
towards a brutal reality of cultural and ethnic cleansing. Um, should I continue? You, um, I'm enjoying it. So would you like to continue or? Um, uh, maybe I'll start at a later place. Yes. Um, um, I mean, later I, I, I continued to talk about how I went back to Palestine and I started to look for for sea stories and, and, and you know, visiting villages and villages and excavating stories. Um, uh, and then I say, <laughs> as I was excavating these stories and capturing their pictures, I was being woven back into my own community. Even more, I was being etched into the global tapestry of human genius that has produced for us our daily bread, our tortillas, and our sun-dried tomatoes. The more I fell in love with seeds, the more I fell in love with myself. And the more I fell in love with birds, the greatest seed savers of all. And the more evidence I uncovered to delegitimize the violent claim that we didn't exist. This plant, bird, and human trilogy has paved the way to assert our presence, not as relics of the past, but as living cultures that are preserving against, persevering against all odds. Palestinian heirloom seeds, I understood, offered the insight into a world that does exist and that has existed for millennia in Il Jabal, the mountain, and the Merch, the plains, of an ancient landscape and a Palestine that had been cultivated by my grandmothers and fathers and was passed down to me through me and through me in the form of edible heritage that still lives in the heart of all those who tasted it and made it part of who they are. In fact, as I became more involved in the work with seeds, I got to understand the significance of what I was doing as a seed myself, and particularly the seed of my two grandmothers. My maternal grandmother, Wadia, who was a farmer, and my paternal grandmother, Jalile, who was a great storyteller. It is no coincidence, perhaps, that in Arabic, the word for plant, zarriya, is used interchangeably with the word for children. People often refer to their children as their zarriya, which can also mean crop or seed. I learned to use this word more often as I tried to figure out why less and less farmers were saving their seeds. In the span of two years, I had interviewed dozens of farmers in the Janine area. Almost every one of them would refer to some distinct uh, crop varieties. So I, I continued to talk about the extinction of, of crop varieties and, and kind of like how this extinction impacted so much. Um, of also the culture and how the culture became changed by that. So I'll just read the little sentence here. This double jab of reckoning with the extinction of species combined with the disappearance of our bioculture led to what unexpectedly became my life's work as a seed and story detective who refused to accept the notion that everything that I have loved and known was vanishing. I wanted to bring the jadu'i back to the field and subsequently to the dinner table. I wanted us to eat our histories rather than store them away in freezers or speak of them as relics of the past. 
And so I embarked on looking for these varieties and working with farmers to reintroduce them to the world. A process that required exhuming old stories and giving them contemporary twists so they become relevant to new generations. In this exciting and often hard journey, I found inspiration in the artistry of nature and in the diversity of seed that amplified our ancestral brilliance as artists and scientists who applied both imagination and observation science to create for us the foods of today. It should never be forgotten, forgotten that it was the vision of an early farmer who dared to look at a wild grass and imagine that one day it would become a wheat or a corn that we would eat on the cob. Um, so I continue talking. There's, there's so much in the passage that you just read and there, there's so much more in kind of setting the stage for your, your work, both this manuscript and your, and your life's work. And um, first of all, I love that you mentioned uh, zarya, right? As a way to describe offspring as well as seedlings. Um, and of course, people also talk about zarya's as being viable or not viable. And sometimes um, that applies to how people talk about their offspring <laughs> as good zarya or bad. Um, it's interesting what you call the lack of commitment to reality that you have. That's not in the part that you read, but in in the, the part in another part of your introduction, and that that lack of commitment to reality is a kind of liberation, right? Freeing the imagination, kind of in a, in a way connected to the imag imagination of the ancestors who saw in grass, who saw wheat in grass, right? Uh, and literally nourished by those ancestors. Okay. So many in the world are coming to the realization that we can more easily imagine total annihilation than imagining reversing the course of climate catastrophe. In the name of reality, people surrender to doom. And you're doing the opposite here, right? So I'm interested in whether you would identify anything specific in your experience that led you to reject reality and embrace imagination feels like there's yeah reality <laughs> <laughs> reality itself <laughs> well i mean um like i was saying like the the like for example the whole idea that a woman felt comfortable as i was just trying on shoes to tell me that i don't exist um Obviously, like this is something that I couldn't accept. There was a dissonance. Like, how can I accept? Like, I, I, I experience myself fully present in the world and literally with soil. With like, I, I experience myself as a child growing up uh, in the hills as part of an, a massive universe. So, for for someone to tell me that I don't exist was. Uh, and it was repeated, especially when I became an immigrant in the United States. You know, it was a common um, thing that people would say, would feel really comfortable saying uh, to my face. Um, and I think that at some point I decided that I no longer wanted to um, 
prove that I exist or like or prove uh, oh I'm human like you are uh, rather I, I really became more and more and, and I continue to be more and more interested in um, creating something different so that people don't feel comfortable asking people if they exist but I mean to answer more simply I, I think I was in a lot of pain about my reality as a um, as a young girl in Palestine and I think I just didn't want to couldn't like I didn't want to accept what everybody was saying was the reality that I should accept in a way I'd rather die than accept it and so I continue to feel this way actually I, I would rather die than to live under the thumb of somebody uh, and I think that's kind of what has led to, I don't know, falling in love with seeds and, and allowing them to teach me about how liberation is maybe possible. It, it feels like um, it resonates actually as a, as a Palestinian stance and a kind of indigenous knowledge and wisdom too. I'm thinking of Emil Habibi's character, the pesoptimist, right? And his, his novel that, like you said, we have no choice but to look reality in the face and decide to live, right? And, and to reject it. Um, yeah, so it's not like I don't recognize reality. Of course I do, but I, I also understand that I don't have to obey it and I don't have to surrender to it. I can say, oh, okay, this is, this is what's on the table, um, but I'm gonna take these ingredients and create something else. You can define. Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, it sounds easier than it, than obviously it's done, but it's it. I feel like, especially right now in the world, uh, this is our job to to take the ingredients and make something different. We need a new dish. We need a new dish. Yeah. On this note of defiance and rebellion, I think this is the perfect moment um, for you to maybe share the passage on your um, your history of rebellion. Right. How how old were you in in that instance? Uh, the it's called the Bell Incident. <laughs> um, uh, I I'm not sure. I must have been eight, something like that. Uh, and I was talking to my cousin Maxim, and apparently there were two Bell Incidents. I only remember one. He remembers the first one because it impacted him. But um, uh, I I wrote about the one I remember. Would you mind reading it to us or part of it? Uh, sure, there are lots of people here. Um, <laughs> so just to give a context, uh, this is, uh, I went to um, a small Catholic school in, in Bejara, so this is the scene. The school bell was um, the school bell was a small yet heavy brass bell that had a thin wooden handle and a large golden clapper, which was only struck by the headmistress, Sir Patricia. She only came out of her office twice each day, once to make sure all students were in line before classes started, and once when she would ring the bell to announce recess at 10 in the morning for half an hour. Otherwise, we were stuffed up 
all day like sardines with teachers who practice discipline liberally through large wooden rulers and hand slabs. There was never a feeling of safety in the classroom, nor was there any kind of mystery or magic around learning something new. It was all instructional and worse, based only on memorizing with no expectation or need for understanding. Looking back today, I realized that the teachers themselves lacked understanding of the material they were teaching us, which probably fueled more of their anger and violence as we would ask questions as curious children who were trying to discover the world. One day before recess, I spent the first period drawing my I spent the first period drawing my, with my pencil big letters on a piece of paper that I tore out of my brown paper notebook and wrote in my second grader handwriting, we are not animals, stop beating us. I folded the paper in the pocket of my school uniform skirt. It was a little apron-like skirt made from dark blue fabric and perfectly ironed each day. But I couldn't care less. As I folded the paper and then folded the skirt between my legs and begged the teacher to let me go to the bathroom, reluctantly letting me out to pee before recess, Miss Aida opened the door and commanded me to return right away. As soon as she shut the door behind me, I pulled my sign out of my skirt and ran carefully downstairs to the headmistress' office, where I snuck in with no one when no one was looking and stole the brass bell. Heavier than my little hands could firmly hold, I carried the bell in one hand and the sign in another, and I set out to start the revolution. I was certain that as soon as the other pupils would come out and see me standing there in the courtyard with my sign, that they would all follow me and join the freedom train. The opposite exactly happened. The courtyard was circular, with bougainvilleas and other flowers covering all its fences, except for one opening where a large statue of Mother Mary stood with two bushes to each side, a pink rose bush and a red one. The statue was beautiful, and Mother Mary wore a draped white dress that had a soft blue stripe on it. She was holding her hands together and always smiling. As soon as I had started ringing the bell, I also started running in the courtyard towards the statue with the certainty that by the time I would arrive at it, the other students would have already lined up behind me. False. As I arrived at the first rose bush, I looked behind me and the only people who were there were two nuns frantically running in their gray uniforms and getting ready to tackle me to the ground which is exactly what they did. They pushed me onto the gravel, took the bell from my hand and ripped my sign apart. And just like a criminal, they had, they, they had my hands wrapped behind my back and walked me to the headmistress office for the greatest beating I ever had before the second one that came at the hands of Mr. Charlie who broke a wooden pole on my legs. The beating, though harsh, on my young skin was tolerable compared to the sight of all my classmates and fellow students who stood in a perfect line at the edge of the courtyard as I ran with the bell, as I lifted the sign and as I was tackled to the ground. 
The looks in their eyes as I was being shoved in between the two nuns and dragged across the courtyard was the first lesson I learned about undignified choices, that they were also possible. It was also my first experience in betrayal, a lesson that I would learn over and over again until I managed to transform these constant disappointments into compassionate spaces in my heart. And like my mother's kitchen, into a lab in which I would refine my visions and all the dishes I would prepare for the future. Betrayal, I later learned, was the most fundamental experience a person has and the one that would distinguish our lives. But the real surprise was when I realized the connection between seeds and betrayal, seeds and dignity, and seeds and freedom. How does a seed take the place of a bell or a sign I make, and how does it speak louder than a protest and bring to the folds more people who believe in magic? How seeds managed to give me an inner triumph that I was able to share with others continues to be the most wondrous achievement of my life in its entirety. No matter what I do next, it won't compare to the freedom journey the seeds and I embarked on and the lessons we have taught each other. Wow, thank you. That's, that's powerful, right? Um, I think of a seed as rebellion in itself, right? That what, what can erupt from a seed, an entire tree. We have a, a friend uh, in Northern Palestine, in the Galilee, who, um, Yaqub al-Khayyat, who is a forager and a cook and a poet, one of his lines is that the the seed is the mother of shame. And because that rebellion can lead to comfort in the end, the rebellion of the seed. And it's also subject to betrayal, as you pointed out. Uh, how, can, how can we join the rebellion of seeds and be true to them and not betray the seeds? How can we be true to the, the rebellion in the seeds? Um, I mean, I can speak for myself what I attempt to do. <laughs> I'm not always successful, obviously. Um, I think it's important to remember that we are seeds, like to also humble ourselves that we are not, um, we are, we are not, not only we're not separate from nature, we are just as much a seed, um, and our, our create our creations and how we are in the world, how we be basically, how we interact with other speech, how we interact with each other is so, so significant. And sometimes just being generous, for example, uh, is a form of rebellion. Uh, just the way like often seeds, trees that we ignore and we don't take care of and people trash under them or cut them, and yet they continue to produce, for example, and, and, and offer nourishment, even though the reality, again, going back to reality, reality says, oh, the world is a harsh place and you should not be generous. You should take care only of yourself. I think when we choose something different, when we choose to still hold on to a value that um, is no longer practiced but more preached, uh, is, I think, a form of rebellion. And seeds really do offer us these, these teachings, you know, 
uh, it's not the seat that people often refer to my work as oh, a seed saver. I feel like the seeds save me. It's not that I save the seeds. Um, and I think this is this switch in how we understand the world and our relation to it, uh, I think is the, the real switch we, we must make in order to be more humble. Because I think with more humility, maybe we can discover more of our power as part of something, wow, big and magical. Mm -hmm. like, like a seed that leads to the power of a tree, right? Humility and power all in one. Um, I'm looking at the time and I'm thinking the the selections we picked. We won't be we won't be able to uh, go through all of them. But I wanted to ask you if you just to be selective. You've written about Gaza in your your trips to Gaza and your childhood, and also there's the period of time where you spent in Jenin and uh, learned from. Ahlithara and the Janine villages and, and area. Would you, would you like to share one of those? And which one? I'll leave it to you. I think, uh, I just want to say, like, I'm the least prepared to share this bit, but I will because I, I want to, you know, give a shout out to Gazze, which is a place very dear to many of us and for me in my childhood. Uh, so I'll, I'll read this bit and I hope people are patient with the fact that I'm also reading it to myself, <laughs> probably only the second time. So, so uh, just the context, my father um, was a sock maker and so he owned a small socks factory. And so on Sundays we would go to Gaze and he would deliver some of the socks and uh, we would spend time there. So um, I grew up a lot of my Sundays in Gaza. So this is the context of uh, of this little little excerpt I'm going to share. So back in the 1980s, our relation to Gaza and its elements were of a sacred nature. On the shores of its piece of the Mediterranean, I learned about seaweed and other sea animals. It was also there that I tasted my first fried shrimp. My father was adamant about not working on Sundays. The only thing he was willing to do is pack the trunk of his Opel record with the ready orders of socks that were ready for delivery. He would stock the light green boxes atop of atop of each other in a perfect giant cube and he would tie them across the railings and through the windows. El Opel, what we called it, was a 1972 white car that had shiny fake leather red seats that were attached in a couch-like form allowing my parents to seat all their kids in it for our Sunday drive. I don't remember the road to Gaze except for the stretch that used to be Deraban, the village where my dad would always slow down and point out that this is where my great-grandmother, Jamile, his grandmother lived before she became a refugee in 1948 and came to Bejala with his father atop of a donkey. 
The other times he would reduce his speed when the piles of green boxes of socks would start to move on the roof of the car. He would often swerve the car to fix their position. One or two boxes would always end up dangling down with this with the sticker of his trademark, Star Socks, Dancing in the Wind. While all the socks were branded Star, some had special labels such as the women's stockings which were called Carol after my middle sister's name. My favorites, however, were the Waladi, Arabic for boys socks. They were always checkered with green and yellow prominent in almost every design. I must say my dad, who comes across as a timid human today, had bold choices when it came to colors in his designs. It took me some time to realize that this meticulous relationship with color was not limited to the socks he designed, but also to what he wore. Prepped and exuding the essence of floral cologne, he would often come out of his room, fixing the tail end of his blazer jacket and asking whoever was around, do you think my shirt matches this jacket? My dad almost always looked stunning in his elegant attire, partly because of how he mixed and matched his clothes, but partly because of how proud he was to be wearing clothes that he chose and that he tailored for himself, a kind of privilege that he could not have dreamed of when he was a little child riding on my great-grandmother's donkey and trying to sneak some candies from her shop. He kept inside him a private spirituality that he never discussed. And even now, as he and even now as he's approaching his 90th year, he continues to pray in the silence of his room, never imposing any of it on anyone, but holding on to it so tightly. I often wondered if my father actually believed in God, the one and only God. And or, or whether he was afraid of him, or whether he actually had another kind of encounter with the divine that he was too embarrassed to share. My father seemed to always carry a tenderness when contem contemplating nature. Um, when he was not being chic and the weather was not warm, uh, my father would put on a thick dark blue wool robe and his famous hand-knitted beanie. Both were dark blue and white with white stripes. The robe had white little squares and the hat had two thick white lines that circled around the fabric. After putting up his collar to firmly secure his neck from the wind, he would tighten his hat and open the window where he would stand all morning staring at the hills and examining the movements of people and cars in the neighborhood. He must have also been noticing the birds, because he would often offer advice with examples of bird behavior, like the time I told him that I didn't want to get married, to which he said, life is hard enough, you don't want to go through it alone. Look at the birds, even the birds need each other to build a nest. Thank you, Vivian, that was, that was beautiful. and. Um... And sad a little bit too, right? Um, that we can no longer get to Gaza and that our people in Gaza can't get to us um, in other parts of Palestine. 
um, your father's spirituality feels very ahlathara to me, right? People of the soil versus urban. I've heard elders in my family say that when they were growing up, they didn't say their daily prayers or go to mosques, but they felt the presence and generosity of God in the fields, and they also felt gratitude there. Can you say a little bit about this this kind of spirituality in in Palestine and other places you've been? And then we we have about seven minutes left total, and then I'll read a couple of the questions for you at least. Yeah, so I mean, I guess I'll be very quick with the answer. and yeah, I think the relationship, again, going back to being Ahlul Thara or people of, of, of earth or land uh, or soil, uh, it, that's what it is. I don't think people go around thinking, oh, they're religious or that they are new age or that they're trying to, you know, convince anyone of anything. There's a way of being that's extremely spiritual and not religious. Uh, obviously, sadly, this is changing a lot in Palestine, um, but that's the kind of spirituality that I think um, I value very much. And, and, and what I think really is what being Ahlul Tara is, is to understand your relation to the whole you know, natural world and to be humble in it as part of it, not as a force of dominance over it. Thanks. I look forward to reading more about that in your book. Um, Unfortunately, we don't have time for too many questions, and we we have cut some of the excerpts to make a little bit of time. But I'll I'll read two of them, just so you have them both out there, and then you can decide how to answer. The first one is from Omar Jadallah. Can you describe the system of terrace agriculture as it has been practiced in Palestine for so long? What is unique about it? And the second is from uh, Amal Ibshara. Thank you for this moving talk. It's moving to hear about family names, place names, and agricultural names of varieties being intertwined. I'd love to hear more about that and how it helps you think about Palestinians' relationships to land and food, to food itself. How do people think of these names today as Palestinians' food worlds change due to neoliberalism and colonial dispossession, right? And and even the naming of the country itself is sometimes at stake. That was my last sentence. It wasn't the last. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I have two minutes to describe the terrorist system. Uh, <laughs> well, um, actually, the two questions kind of are interrelated because, um, uh, you know, the terrorist system is unique in that I think, first and foremost, it it uh, participate it it is it is created uh, by using uh, the natural elements around. So there are no foreign inputs in terracing. In fact, you use the the rocks and the stones that are already there, and so it serves two purposes. One is to provide soil soil, uh, soil preservation and, and protection, uh, while you are also creating a soil that you can grow stuff in because you're clearing all the big rocks. Um, and so there is no foreign 
uh, inputs that come into farming. And so you're creating terraces that are easy to work with while and also easy to, you know, and also creating space on the mountain uh, for you to grow your food uh, without bringing something new. Um, also, the ancient forms of terracing uh, are really good for uh, retaining um, moisture and then also uh, uh, draining in a natural way rather than, you know, putting concrete and big uh, pipes, uh, the rocks themselves. In fact, we have an area in Bejala called the Makhrur and it's terraced like that. And because when it rains, the, the water comes through and it creates the sound of Al-Kharir. Uh, that's why it's called Makhrur. And sound Al-Kharir is the sound of the water um, <coughs> uh, running through. Uh, and this is important to the other question in that um, preserving our, our terraces is significant because this is where we also, again, it's a, it's a, it's a process of co-creation constantly between seed, human, stone, soil, all of us. And so what we developed as crops that we cultivate in these terraces uh, is are, are crops that, as we say, know this soil and know this environment and know this system of terracing. And so um, since our terraces have been, uh, are actually currently, as I, as I speak, many of them are being destroyed. Um, right, I just came back from Palestine and in the last year alone, massive amounts of terraces have been completely destroyed for settler roads. And so uh, not just the ancient terraces, but what we eat and how we eat today Sadly, we eat more KFC in general than we eat our grandmother's tomatoes. And so uh, these terraces are significant uh, because they're also conserving ancient soil, soil that is literally thousands and thousands of years old. This is a brief... <laughs> yeah, a, a brief answer to a very big question. Um, I honestly wish we had another half hour. There were uh, so many concepts and, uh, and a few other excerpts that we, we could have touched on, but that's all we could do in an hour. And thank you so much, Vivian, for sharing of your work and really wish you well on this journey of birthing this, this great um, book that we look forward to, to reading. Do you, want, do you have any last things to say as we close out? I just want to thank you and thank everybody and just to say again it's a work in progress and I hope that I'll be able to honor everyone who has opened their home and their hearts to me in this process and so thank you. Thank you and to the others who posted questions we'll make sure that Vivian gets those questions so she knows what, uh, what you put out there. Thank you, everybody, and thanks to Hillary and um, the hosts here. Sponsor Religion, Conflict, and Peace Initiative. Copyright 2022, the President and Fellows of Harvard College.